when I come to a story like today that's in three of the four Gospels, that really causes me to pay attention because there's something that God really wants to convey to us. And so when I I look at the stories, I, I ask God, why did you include these details? You know, you could have given us any detail, but you included certain details and you left certain details out. Why is that? What is it that you wanted to do? Well, today we're going to look at a story that is included in, again, three of the four Gospels. Uh, There's going to be a glaring truth in this, and it's going to be a painful truth. A painful truth is kind of uh, like when you've been inside and it's kind of dark in the middle of the day, and then you walk outside into the bright sunshine, and all of a sudden the sunshine hits you, and it causes your eyes to wince, and the temptation is to run back inside the dark where it's comfortable, but we find that if we just wait a minute or so, we adjust and then we're able to go on. This glaring truth is some, something that affects 70% of our church, 70% of every church in America, of Christians throughout the, the United States. Today, we're going to meet a guy who's very much like us. He's going to be confronted with a very difficult, in his case, painful truth and he's going to learn something about himself that's very hard to admit. Jesus is going to reveal something to him. And he has the opportunity to embrace the truth and go on, but sadly in our story today, he's going to see the truth, recognize it as truth, but then find himself going back into the place of comfort, we would say back into the place of darkness. So today the story is commonly referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. So we'll see that as we we travel through. But last week we began chapter 19. Now in chapter 19, verse 1, if I could just go back to verse 1 for a moment, Uh, It says, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee, and we all underlined Galilee last week, and came to the region of Judea beyond Jordan. And so we put a map up, and I want to do that again this week. But as I do, I want to tell you a quick story of what happened just before this service. Um, A few years ago, when we would put the map up, we we had um, a laser print, uh, laser, uh, laser. And um, and we felt like, well, it's kind of tacky for me to be doing this all the time with, with a laser. So we decided to go with circles around the towns and kind of highlight that. But today, uh, on the way into the service, I was given a laser pointer. While you were worshiping Jesus, I was in the booth trying to figure out how to put the batteries in. And so today, we are going to use the laser printer. Then we'll have a church vote and decide which way we want to go with this, okay? So... So verse 1 says, again, when he had finished these words, he departed from Galilee. Now, if you've been traveling with us through this study, you know that Galilee is this area in northern Israel where there is the Sea of Galilee. How'd I do, by the way? Gets better. So up there you have this town of Capernaum, which is where Jesus has had his home base for three years of his ministry. So just about everything we've done in Matthew so far has been up in the northern region. 
Then in the middle of Israel, you have this area called Samaria. It's a large area right in the middle, which is where the Samaritans live. Many are surprised to find when you hear about the Samaritans in the Bible that they're right there in the middle of of, of, uh, the nation of Israel, which is probably an interesting thing there. But here this week it says that Jesus has come down to the area of Judea down at the bottom, which is the southern part of Israel. And of course down there, there is the town of Jerusalem, which is the big town in Israel. And just south of Jerusalem is this little town of Bethlehem, which is about three to five acres in size when Jesus was born. So the reason this is so important is that Jesus leaves the northern part of Israel and comes down. He will not be going back to the north. He's coming down knowing that the crucifixion is very near. In our story, Jesus is within two weeks of the crucifixion. So church vote, laser, all signify by saying aye. Circles, all signify by saying aye. Aye. Overwhelming. (laughs) Both. Circles and lasers. Okay. (laughs) So you don't think people think that we're tacky when we do that? No. No. I'm, I'm, I'm left-handed, so everything I point over this way. So you people over there, just two. A man who can do that can be somebody. Yeah, all right. Like a cowboy western movie or something. All right, so anyways, we're in a chapter. What chapter were we in? Chapter 19, okay. So, uh, so that's where we were last week. We talked about as Jesus has come down to the area of Jerusalem, uh, there's this discussion about marriage and remarriage. And today we're going to pick up our story in verse 16. And in verse 16 it says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now my translation here frustrates me because um, it's not true to what's really being said. So I've placed there in your outline what's really being said. And the New King James Version picks it up. So he says, Now behold, one came to him and said to him, Good teacher. I want you to underline good teacher. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And that's going to be important. So this story, again, is told in three of the four Gospels. So when Mark tells the story, I put it there on your outline, it says, now as he was going on the road, and that tells us that this is going to take place not in a, in a private area, this is in a public area, this is out on the, on the road. Uh, one came running. So this person who wants to come to Jesus, there's an approach, there's an excitement, there, there's an urgency of getting to him. And it says, knelt before him. And I've underlined that word knelt, we'll come back to that. And asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? Eternal life. So one of the things that we notice here is that this man knelt before Jesus. There's a position. He kneels before Jesus. There is a reverence in his approach. There's an urgency. He runs to Jesus. He kneels down before Jesus. That's important because not everybody kneels before Jesus in the Gospels, but he does. We're going to find, though, sadly, this is the only person in the Gospels who kneels before Jesus and goes away in a worse condition than when he approached Jesus. And that's going to be important for our study. Now, when Luke tells the story, Luke says it like this, a ruler, and you want to underline that question, him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Important to know in this time period when it says ruler, 
that the nation of Israel was ruled by the Romans. We're going to find that this guy is Jewish. He's not part of the government. He would be part of the religious leadership. So he's either going to be a synagogue leader, part of the Sanhedrin, but he's somebody who would be respected among the, the religious community. Uh, they've respected him so much they've made him a leader within the, the religious community. So that's going to be important. He approaches to Jesus. He approaches Jesus and, uh, in, and uh, in a few verses we're going to find that he's also young and he's rich, which is why it's called the rich young ruler. He approaches Jesus and his question is, how can I have assurance? How can I obtain? What do I need to do to receive eternal life? He believes that Jesus alone has the answer of eternal life or that Jesus is the answer of eternal life. So, so far he's doing pretty good. At this point, his emphasis is on what must I do? Now, he's coming to Jesus talking about what must I do? So Jesus is going to speak to him on his level, but Jesus is going to reveal the truth about him as we go. So uh, Jesus is going to go what we'd say straight to the heart of the matter. Verse 17, he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. So again, uh, my translation typically does a very good, good job, but on, on these two verses it, it did not. So I put this verse on your outline because it captures what is actually be, being said. And if you have a different translation than mine, your translation is going to say what's on here, the outline. So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. The title good teacher, the term good teacher was never in any other circumstance given to a rabbi. And the reason for that is in that culture, when Jesus says that you know, there's only one good and that's God, uh, they all got that. They all got that. So, so you would never say this to a rabbi. Jesus here is not denying uh, his deity or anything like that. He's just pointing out the uniqueness of the title that this man is giving to Jesus. Uh, he's uh, the man is saying, in essence, you know, Jesus says, you are good, the good teacher, and Jesus says, only one is good, God. Therefore, he's making sure that everybody understands what you're saying is that I am God. And the man does not dispute that. Everybody understands what he's saying. So if you would, there in your outline, the man agrees that Jesus is God. He's going to be very upfront about that. All Christians believe that Jesus is God. It's the dividing line between everything that is Christian and everything that is non-Christian. All Christians believe that Jesus is God. Everyone else believes that Jesus is not God. It's the dividing line. Now what's important is he's going to recognize that Jesus is God. For our purpose today, let me also say that every demon recognizes that Jesus is God. That doesn't make them saved. So he is going to recognize that Jesus is God. Well, he recognizes that Jesus is God, and uh, Jesus says there's no one good but God, to which the man is affirming. So you want to write down that he declares that God is good. Jesus is God and God is good. He's a religious leader. Uh, he would certainly hold that. He's probably told other people that God is good. And so Jesus says, okay, if you agree that, that I'm God and in being God, I am good, then verse 17, he ends up by saying, just keep, keep the commandments. Now, again, he's not saying keep the commandments as a way of being saved. He's taking this man on a journey to reveal the truth about where he's really at. So the man says in verse 18, he said, he said to him, which ones? 
And Jesus said, now when I read Jesus' words, I always wonder about the tone in which Jesus is speaking. I'm going to tell you, uh, the punchline here a little bit, is that Jesus is setting him up. So I think when Jesus reads these commands, he's going to read it something like that, uh, something like this. The man says, which ones? And Jesus says, "Mm, you know, you should not commit murder, not commit adultery, you should not steal, should not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, or you should love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, he goes through six of the big ten. Now, the, the, the part that we miss as we read this is Jesus cites all of the commandments that deal with how we treat other people. But he leaves two commandments uh, out of this list uh, that, that are, are very important for our study today, but we miss it sometimes. So the first one that he leaves out uh, would be the whole no other gods. You want to write that down? That's kind of like the big one. That, that's number one. Uh, it begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You should have no other gods before me. Jesus leaves that one off the list. And uh, so then another one that he leaves out is thou shalt not covet. You want to write that down. Thou shalt not covet. So Jesus gives the list of all the commandments that deal with how we treat other people. And the guy, you know, okay, that's good. But he leaves out the two commandments that deal with our relationship with God and our relationship with stuff. And uh, that's part of what Jesus is going to bring into the conversation in just a moment. So he says this in verse 20, it says, the young man said to him, by the way, young, he's a rich young ruler. So we put those things together. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, some of your Bibles say, from my youth. What am I still lacking? I've kept them, but I'm sensing that something is still missing. Something's wrong. Jesus will not dispute that this man has kept all of the commandments that relate to how he would treat other people. Certainly, uh, you know, certainly he's done that. This guy's a good guy. He's done good stuff. And uh, he's done these things to the point where they have in that religious culture, that religious community, they have elevated him to the place of leadership. He's, he's always been good to people all the time. So he is expecting Jesus to say, as he says, I've done these, he's expecting Jesus to say something like, you're doing great, just keep going. I mean, you're, you're right on the right path. And what we find at this point, now Matthew doesn't include this, but Mark does. And it's right at this point where the man says, I've done all of these things. And again, many of your Bibles will say, from, from my youth. At that point, Jesus, or in Mark's gospel, it adds a detail and it says this. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And I want you to underline, loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. Something happens inside of Jesus. He looks at this man. He's a good guy. He's the type of guy that we'd all want around. He's, a, he's in religious leadership. He would never hurt anybody. Uh, He's kept those commandments. And Jesus' heart goes out to him. And there's not going to be any condemnation. There's no chastisement. But what we're going to find is that there's something missing in his life. And Jesus, it says that Jesus loved him. Jesus is about to bring to light a glaring truth 
and this man's life that's hindering him from eternal life. And, uh, but the part that I want us all to get as we go forward, when it says Jesus loved him, and you want to write this down, Jesus' motivation here is love. There's something that's hindering. He needs to know. It's a painful truth. He's not going to like it, but out of love, Jesus says, you need to know this. You need to know this. Well, verse 21, it says, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, some of your Bibles say perfect, perfect in the sense of being complete. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus turns to him and says, sell it all, give it all away and come and follow me. Important to understand in this story, he is a religious leader. He has, in order to be a religious leader, he's somebody who had to be doing what they called tithing. So he's always put God first in his finances. He's somebody that would, because he's in religious leadership, he would have been giving to the poor. But at this point, Jesus says to him, I want you to sell it, give it all away, and then come and follow me. It's important for us to recognize before we go forward that Jesus doesn't even say to him, sell it all and give it to me. Jesus says, sell it all and give it to the poor. Now the reason for this is so that we don't draw the conclusion that Jesus needs his stuff. Because people always say, all they want is your... You've never heard this? (laughs) So people will say that. Now, Jesus doesn't say, give it to me. But there's something that this man needs to do. There's something about this man that needs to be revealed. And so it's also important to recognize that this man has said, you are God and you are good. I recognize who you are. And Jesus doesn't give an impassioned plea. He just says, I want you to go sell it, give it, and follow me. So the question would be, will this man do what Jesus said to do? I mean, if you really call me God and you call me good, will you do what I tell you to do? As we've traveled through the Gospels, one of the things that we've seen is that Jesus has healed many people. So there was the time when the guy comes to Jesus and he has leprosy, and this was destroying his life. So Jesus steps in and he removes the disease so that this man can go forward in freedom. Another time, somebody is blind and uh, it's, it's destroying their life. And so Jesus steps in, he removes the problem so that they can go forward in freedom. This man has a problem that's destroying his spiritual life. Jesus wants to remove the problem so that he can go forward in his spiritual life. He's doing this not to get from him. He's doing it because he loves him. There's something that this man needs to to have. So how will this man respond? Well, in verse 22, it says, when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. I want you to underline the word grieving. You get the sense that he looks at Jesus and he says, this isn't what I asked for. I, I didn't ask for you to tell me to give it all away sell it, you know, come follow you. I'm just asking you for eternal life. I'm not really interested in all of those other things. He recognizes that Jesus is good. 
or he recognizes that Jesus is God, he affirms that God is good. He would never break the commandments. And, and what we find about him that Jesus needs to reveal about him as he reveals what's really going on in his spiritual life. And it's simply this, and you want to write this down. We're going to find that this man was all in with Jesus until Jesus told him what to do with his money. And at that point, the conversation ends. The conversation ends. So Jesus says, sell it, give it, and come follow me. And it's not that Jesus needed it. You know, we, he didn't even say give it to him. He just said, sell it, give it, and come follow me. But what's revealed here, although he said, Jesus, you are God, and God is good, his decision is declaring, you are not allowed to tell me what to do with my money. And that's the decision that he makes. It's going to be the outward manifestation of what's really going on in his heart. It's going to be the outward manifestation of his true spiritual condition. So when I look at this, you know, again, this would be a, a, a guy who had the reputation for giving already. Uh, he had the, uh, the reputation for helping the poor. But Jesus tells him, I want you to go sell it all. Give it away and follow me. So if you and I were to put ourselves in his shoes and Jesus were to come to us and say, how about this? Go sell it all, give it away, and come follow me. Now don't raise your hands. Don't say it out loud. But would you do it? What if Jesus just came to you and said, I don't want you to sell it all. I don't want you to give it all away. How about this? How about Jesus, if he were to say, just put me first in your finances. Would you do that? Would you put him first in your finances? What if Jesus were to come to you and say, um, I'm doing this thing and I'd love for you to jump on board and partner with me financially as you partner in my work and we accomplish this. If Jesus came to you and said that, what would you say? What would you say? So this man represents 70% of all Christians who profess Jesus is God, God is good. We would never break the commands. We'd never commit adultery. We'd never steal. We'd never cheat anybody in business. We'd be good people. And yet, we're all in with Jesus up until... Jesus mentions what he wants to do, what he wants us to do with our money. And it's at that point that the conversation ends. And it's very revealing. Now, in our world, again, 70% are all in with Jesus on every aspect until Jesus mentions what he wants us to do with our money. In our story today, there is a man who recognizes the truth about himself and he grieves as he goes away. You and I live in, in, in at, least he grip, at least he grieves. You and I live in a church culture that can at times be not just apathetic but downright hostile to the even mentioning it. 
can I tell you a story? I'm going to tell it. You might as well just say yes. So a few weeks, let me just share where we are as a culture, a Christian culture, in church every week. So you all know I have 12 kids. And, and uh, our oldest, Johnny, he's in Orlando, he's married. But the other ones, from Daniel on down, 11 kids, they're all here. Daniel's 18. It was a few weeks ago, we were in Matthew chapter 17. And in Matthew chapter 17, there is the story of, of uh, the, 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 it was the story where they want Jesus and his disciples to pay the poll tax. So Jesus tells Peter, go and cast your line, catch the fish, the coins in the fish mouth. And many people confuse that because of some things that are said that that's talking about tithing. And, and, and I made the point, just a, a very uh, specific point, that this was not a tithe, it was a tax. It was a tax, not a tithe. And so my kids sit in you know, the various services and they typically sit over here and uh, this side over here just by habit. And so this one day when I say that, after the service, my son Daniel, who's 18, comes out and meets me in the breezeway. And he says, Dad, you're not going to believe what happened in church today. I said, what? He says, you know how you were going through and you said that this is a tax, not a tithe? And I said, yes. He says, the lady behind me, she slammed her Bible shut and she says, don't tell me he's going to talk about effing tithing. And he said, but she said the real word. The point is, here's where we've come. This man recognizes the truth about himself and he grieves. We live in a church culture where we are apathetic and to the point where we are actually hostile as if to respond, don't you dare speak about this in church. To the point where we're comfortable using profanity. And I think the greatest delusion when we do that is somewhere we think that Jesus is on our side. And that's not the case. Something needed to be revealed in this man's life. So Jesus doesn't give a heartfelt story. He just says, sell it, give it, follow. Jesus realizes, and I want you to write this down, Jesus knows that this man needs treasure in heaven. He has no treasure in heaven. Jesus says it like this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. The truth is, if our treasure isn't in heaven, from Jesus' perspective, our heart is not in heaven. Uh, because Jesus loves this man, he needs to reveal the truth. And here's the truth about this man. Write this down. His response revealed his real God. And his real God wasn't Jesus. So he's not willing to deal with this barrier. So here's a man who says, I believe Jesus is God. God is good. I keep the commandments. But when Jesus says, do this with his finances, He looks at his real God. He hears what Jesus says. He looks at his real God. And his real God says no. And so he turns to Jesus and he says no. He says no. He reveals that Jesus is not his real God. Now the part that hits me is that when he walks away, he says he went away. He went away. Jesus doesn't chase him. Jesus doesn't run him down and say, I was just using an illustration. It's an analogy. It's it's something metaphorical. Uh, Jesus lets him go. And here's why. You recall back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave a very, very uh, profound truth. There in your outline he said, 
No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here's what he's talking about. You cannot serve both God and money. The way that you know if you're serving God or money is simply this. If God tells you to do something with your money and you say, no, you are serving money. If God tells you to do something with your money and you say, yes, you're serving God. That's how you know whether you're serving God or you're serving money. This man wanted eternal life, but Jesus had to reveal to him, you want eternal life, but I'm not your real God. Your real God is revealed in this decision. The decision didn't make him, it just revealed the truth about him. And yet he affirmed that Jesus was God, that God is good, and he would never hurt anybody else. But when his back was against the wall, what came out was, Jesus, you're not my real God, you're not my ruling God. One of the things that God knows about us that this man needed to see, and you want to write this down, his response revealed what he really loved. In a couple of chapters we're going to get there, someone's going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So here's what happens. God knows about you and I that we always give over the top generously to the things that we love the most. It has always been. When Cheryl and I were dating, and guys, you remember when you were dating what's now your wife, and you were in love, you, whatever she wanted, she got. Whatever. You know, and I can't even, I'm not going to tell you some of the money, the stupid stuff that we spent money on, but I didn't care. I didn't care because I was in love. And let me tell you, not much has changed. Whatever Cheryl wants, Cheryl gets. But especially in those early days, you know, Cheryl says, I'm going to go to this restaurant. I didn't say, I got to check the budget. I was like, we're going. I'll figure it out later because I was in love. And that's how it is when you are in love. What Jesus is doing for this man is he is revealing that Jesus isn't his first love. This man loves something else greater than Jesus. Well, verse 22 again, he says, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus knew that this man was owned by his possessions. His possessions, his wealth was his real God. And that was manifested when Jesus stepped in and said, do this. And he said, no. What's also important in this is this man recognizes that he's making an eternal decision uh, as to which God he's going to follow. And so he goes away grieving. And if you don't believe that this is an eternal decision, and and please hear me when I say, it wasn't his giving that made him saved or not. The point was that his real God wasn't Jesus, and the manifestation of Jesus not being his real God manifested in that way. So he makes an eternal decision as to which God he's going to follow. Jesus lets us know that it's an eternal decision in verse 23. He says, and he said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The camel in that day was the largest common animal in the region. The eye of the needle was the smallest opening that they knew of. So there's this comparing and contrasting. 
the largest with the smallest. It, it can't be done. Now the disciples at this point will be shocked. By the way, let me just read there in your outline. Uh, when Mark tells that, he says it like this, how hard it is for those who, and I've underlined trust in riches, to enter the kingdom of God. His decision revealed that his trust wasn't in Jesus. His decision revealed that his trust was in his finances, his wealth, his riches is the idea. There is no problem with wealth. There's no problem with riches. Uh, When you look through the Bible, what you find is that God uses wealthy people all the time. Abraham is the father of faith. He was probably the richest man on the planet. Later on you have David who's the king and God blesses him financially. And his son Solomon was the richest man in the entire earth. There was never a problem with that. We're going to find in a couple of chapters there's going to be a guy called Joseph of Arimathea who's very wealthy and and he's going to bury Jesus in his tomb. When you get to the story of Zacchaeus, he was very wealthy. You come to the book of Acts, there's a woman named Lydia and, and the entire church can meet in her house. She's very wealthy. The problem wasn't wealth. The problem was, does the wealth have you? And uh, it's okay to have wealth, but the problem is, does the wealth have you? You know that the wealth has you when God says, do this, and you respond by saying, no. And we do that. We do that. Well, verse 25, it says, now when the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, who then can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, you know, with people this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The disciples says, how, if, if they can't be saved, how can anybody be saved? They believed in their culture that if you were rich, it's because God favored you and he blessed you because he liked you. And uh, he liked you and you, you, you were favored, you could give more and he liked you even more. And so they, they believe that. So Jesus is dismantling that belief system. So that leaves us with a question. Before we go any further, is God calling us to sell everything, give it all away, and follow him. Well, before we have to change the name of our church to the first church of the unemployed, I would say no. Because if you give it all away, you sell it, you give it all away, what's going to happen is you're going to show up at the church and you're going to say, I sold it and I gave it and I have nothing. And we're going to say, you need to go get some back. He's not asking us to do that. He's revealing to this man this was the problem. So Jesus had to reveal to this man that Jesus was not his real God. That was revealed in the decision that he made. So the disciples are watching this and they realize that they've, they've, they have walked away from everything to follow Jesus. Peter, when you read the narrative, you'll hear Peter referred to as the poor fisherman. Nothing is further from the truth. The Bible says that he had multiple boats, he had employees, and uh, he, it was a very, very prosperous business that he had. It was prosperous in the sense that the fish you got for free and then you sold them. It doesn't get any more prosperous than that. So Peter walks away from a very prosperous business. Matthew was a tax collector. He was making a truckload of money. So they look on and they say, we, we have done that. Peter said to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He points to the future and then he says in verse 29, and everyone, that's you and me, 
who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or farms, which would be businesses, for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now there on your outline, uh, when Mark tells it, he says a hundred times as much now in the present age. So you want to write this down, apparently following Jesus does not mean a life of poverty. That's not his idea. Jesus is not asking this man to sell everything so he can have a wonderful life of poverty. He's asking this man to trust him so that he can be really blessed. He can be blessed in all that he does and become everything that God has. For you and I, being dead, broke, poor, that doesn't help us, it doesn't help anybody else. God's not asking us to be poor. The question is, do we have the wealth or does the wealth have us? And it depends on how we respond to God when he speaks to us. So there's a principle. There's a principle in the Old Testament, New Testament, we're going to call this an eternal principle. In the Old Testament, it would say it like this. However, a firstborn among animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord. No man may consecrate it. Whether it's ox, sheep, it is the Lord. Throughout the Bible, it teaches that God is always first. He's always first. Another time, it would say it like this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first and best of, best part of all your income. Then your barns will be full, your vats will overflow with fresh wine. The idea is put God first in your finances and God says, and I'll turn around and I'll bless you. I'll bless you. So here's the principle. You want to write this down. The first always belongs to God. The first always belongs to God. Jesus did not give an impassioned plea to this man. It really came down to, you say I'm God, you claim I'm good, here's what I want you to do. His response revealed the true nature of his spiritual condition. So with that, my charge to you would simply be to evaluate. Many people are all in with Jesus up until the point where he says, do this with your finances. And it's at that point, conversation is over, Jesus don't go there. Sadly, for many, that reveals the truth about their spiritual condition. Don't let that be you. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as we wrap this up today, this is a, a glaring truth, a painful truth. There's the outside where the decision manifest what's really going on on the inside and the inside is that when push came to shove you weren't this man's real God and you revealed that. Sadly for him sadly for him when he had the choice to make you his real God he walked away. We pray that today as we look at this truth and we see this uncomfortable, glaring, at times painful truth, that you will help us to put you in the place of being our real God, our ruling God. So when you speak to us, we say yes, not because you've given an impassioned plea, but because you're God and you're good and we trust you and we step out following you. 
Father, I thank you for this congregation. I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.